Amen. 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 Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. There's so much wire here. I gotta coil it up or I'll trip over it. Good to see everybody this morning. Praise the Lord. I'm grateful that the love of Christ always pierces the darkness. I'm grateful that whenever God shows up, the atmosphere changes. Amen? Uh, could be hot outside, but it's hotter in other places of God's creation. Amen? And we're not there. We're in the presence of the Lord. We're walking in the kingdom of our God. We're walking in his love, his mercy, his grace. Amen? You know, um, <clears throat> the uh, message this morning, wherever Ben's at, he always asks me what the message is at the end of, so he's back in the back shaking his hand, so I know he sees me. Uh, the message, uh, the title this morning is Shadows and the Unseen Hand of, God, of Love. So Lonnie's always talking about the shadows, right? The shadows of God, the shadows of his presence. And I've been thinking about the last couple of messages that have come and um, really asking the Lord about a bunch of different things. You know, um, for me and my prayer time and just where I travel in the Upper Valley, perhaps the same as you, um, it's really been apparent to me that our adversary is becoming more bold, that he's becoming um, I won't say courageous because he doesn't have any courage. Um, he's about shadows and hiding in dark places. He's about uh, everything that's a lie. And so I won't say courageous, but he is becoming more and more obvious, intensifying. It seems to me that everything that it's godly now, uh, he is protesting and standing against somehow, finding a willing vessel to show himself through. He was a liar in that day, in the garden of Adam and Eve, looking to pervert the things of God, and he hasn't stopped. But he is becoming a little more aggressive, and he's becoming, and he seems to be standing against everything where God's word offers freedom and hope and liberty, justice and purity, passion. Everything that speaks of the covenant of Christ. Everything that promises and prophesies of what the future holds for us. These spirits come to attack our minds and our thoughts and our emotions. They come to attack us personally and intimately of who we are. They've studied our character since the day we were born. The spirits come to say that you can make it on your own. You can make your own decisions. Same thing he did in the garden. Has God really said? They come to protest his character. And now we're seeing signs from willing individuals that have given themselves over to the lie, standing on the street corner, holding up signs that are directly contrary and opposite of God's laws and his principles, his love and his passion. His mercy. Don't ever forget His mercy. 
and his grace. They come to say that the word of God is twisted. They come to say that the laws of God are twisted. They come to say that they've been perverted for generations and now they're going to make them right. They come to redefine mercy and grace into some perverted thing that God never intended. They come to rewrite God's laws. They come to rewrite anything that's of justice and truth and mercy and grace. The passion and his character, it's an attack on God's character. It's an attack on you because you carry the presence of God. Isaiah prophesied all of those generations ago in 520. He said, whoa, stop. Listen to me. The word of God is coming out of my mouth. That's what Isaiah said. He's a prophet, one of the greatest prophets. And he said in 520, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness in the place of light, those who would prefer bitter from the sweet. So, this isn't the message this morning, but it's an acknowledgement of the warfare that's around us, that we're the sons of God carrying the real authority and the real power. So God also said in another place, even though sin is getting more bold in our communities and in the world and across the nations, and even though sin seems to be more prevalent to those of us who know his character and know his heart and know his laws and know his word, and has, he has personally spoken the prophecies into our life, and we hold on to those things. Where there is sin in opposition against all that's right and justice, God's word said, grace abounds. All the more. That means there's an increase in grace being poured out upon the earth in the day that we're in. That means grace is coming to fill the places that prevent the Israelites from stepping into the Red Sea, as we've heard this morning. That means grace comes to meet us into the place where the impossible, there is no way forward unless God himself does something. Grace is the enablement to do what the word of God demands of us. And if the word of God demands that we, we walk down the bank and into the Red Sea, before it starts to part, then grace enables us to do that. When every single thing around us testifies to the contrary, foolish decisions, you're standing by faith? How foolish is that? Don't you know? In Romans 5.20, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. John told us in chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, that God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. You know, it's occurred to me more significantly over these past few weeks and months, and maybe the last year, I don't know, that we've got to rightly understand love itself. We've got to rightly understand when, when, when the prophet declares, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. There was a period in my life where I only discerned love to be that ooey-gooey feeling of, oh, it comes over you and you feel like, um, you feel passionate, you feel hopeful, you feel energized, you feel encouraged, you feel strengthened. You feel, there was a feeling to love. There was a feeling to what I expected and what I defined love to be. And anything contrary to that in my insecurity wasn't love. We've got to understand love. If God is love, and he's bringing correction to those he loves, the times that I've received correction has been one of the most unloving feelings that I have experienced. It's not fun. It's not hopeful. It doesn't bring you a feeling of security. It do, it, it's contrary to all those feelings of the emotions where if you define love as only a good feeling, you're missing a whole part of God's heart and his passion for your life. We've got to understand we must rightly divide and rightly understand what lo how love demonstrates itself because love demonstrates itself in a wide variety of emotions, not just the warm, sunny, ooey-gooey feelings. When I was a child, we used to bring the wood stove into the living room about November-ish. And when I was really young, my mom and dad had a talk with me. Kids, come on, everybody gather around the living room. The stove is going to heat our house, and if you touch it, you're going to get burned. That was my mother and father expressing to me their love of trying to keep me from experiencing something that was going to be very painful. If I disobeyed, and I went up to touch the stove, their love still covered me in being there for me and grabbing me and pulling me back. But I still had to experience the consequence of the burn because I made the conscious decision to disobey. So if our parents know how to show love, if we as individuals know how to show love, how much more the one that created us? Trials 
Jesus himself said, trials will come. He said it's not possible that they don't. Jesus himself said that. Ah, boy, if there were one or two things I could take out of the Bible, right? Trials must come? Yeah. It's important that we understand why and what they're for. Trials tend to change our character and who we are, the way we think about things. The trial of touching the wood stove made it so I never did that again. Not at least by intentionally. Maybe I touched it by putting the wood in the door and by mistake, but I never I never intentionally. And so I learned by the things that I suffered. I learned by the things that I experienced. I learned by saying, okay, when there's instructions, I better listen. I better humble myself. And I better decide to obey. Right? Love exposes fears and enables you by grace to walk differently. Love identifies the current condition of the heart and the wrong viewpoint that I may have about the thing we're talking about. Love requires you to look up at the cross of Jesus Christ and getting us to realize that our present situation will not last forever. It's reminding us that his love is without end. It isn't given when we do good and removed from us when we do bad. Love comes to recognize and offers us that we might know that we are more than we've become. Love is always encouraging us to go higher, to be more intimate, to be more personal, to obey, to engage. Love walks you through your own places of insecurity and doubt. The own places of of weakness. Love brings you to realize that without Him, you can do nothing. That you're empty and without hope. Love. Love. The author, the creator, the one that is love. Perhaps one of my most favorite stories that plays itself out, that I get reminded about when I'm in the midst of the storm or receiving discipline or receiving correction. One of the places that I love the most is the story of Gideon. Gideon was an individual that was just, he heard about the promises of God. He heard about the prophecy. He heard about the covenant. He heard about the places of his father's. Yet he was living in an environment with idols all around him. And he was raised up in a house of idols, trying to separate truth from the lie, struggling between what people say about the spirit realm versus what he's experiencing on his own in real life. And at this time, God brings judgment upon the Israelites for seven years. Because of the walking in sin. And as the story unfolds, it said that their adversary, the Midianites, 
were as numerous as locusts, as the sands of the sea. And so because they were overpowered, they decided to run and hide in caves and hide in the mountains. Because everything that was the rich part of the land where that they were living, the where the produce was grown, they would sow the seed, and every farmer expects to get a, get a harvest. But in this case, the Midianites were coming and raiding the land, and they were destroying the crops. Raiding. How long has it been since we have been sowing and sowing and sowing, yet sometimes we don't even get the seed back? Sometimes the harvest seems to be stolen and ripped off from us. We pray and we pray, and sometimes prayers go unanswered. And sometimes we're like, where is God? I'm standing on his word. I'm executing what I know to be spiritual accurate. I know he's living inside of me. I can sense his spirit. But why are these things happening? I'm sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing for decades and generations. Yet the promise remains unfulfilled. Why? This is where they were. They were sowing the land. They were sowing the seed. They were trying to live as farmers and as sheep and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yet the Midianites were coming in and destroying that which was growing. And it drove them into the place of the mountains and caves. Judges chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, came and sat under the terebinth tree in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Aborazite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. What a contrary thought that must have gone through his mind. Here he was, hiding in the wine press in the cave because of what was happening in the land. What problem are you facing today? How has the army or the enemy ripped you off, causing you to run from the, and avoiding the confrontation? Well, in Gideon's day, the way this story is written, Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, have you asked yourself that question this year? Where is God? Am I even saved? Where is he? Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles that our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. The angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, came to him, as I read to you earlier, and addressed him as a mighty man of valor. My expectation would be, if I'm hiding from the Lord and wondering, and my faith is at a low point, and I'm wondering where God's promises are, and I'm hiding in the dark places, 
and I'm running to save my life, my mind is thinking about, I failed. My mind is thinking about, I haven't become that which the Scripture speaks about. My mind is thinking about when an angel of the Lord comes to me, he's not going to address me as a mighty man of valor. He's going to address me in saying, Sean, what are you doing, O ye of little faith? O ye that refuses to understand my, my covenant and the destiny that I've written, what are you doing? Why are you shrinking back? What is going on in your heart? Why do you doubt the Word of God? That's what I would have expected when I get into the places where Gideon is. I expect the Father to come and in love, show me the stick. Show me his hand on my backside. That's the way I was born and raised. When I did something wrong, there was a consequence. There was a penalty for the unbelief of not believing my parents touching the stove, right? But I think that the day that we're in, the mindsets are changing, and I want to explain why in the rest of what I'm offering. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hands of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? The difference between where Gideon thinks his life is and where God thinks his life is couldn't be more different. So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is of the weakest of Manasseh, and I am the least of all of those in my father's house. In other words, he's saying, I have no talent, I have no, I have no ability, I have no understanding, and that which I believed in the spiritual realm, I've abandoned. This is what Gideon is saying. But the Lord never gives up. He continues to call Gideon forth into an atmosphere and a position and a mantle and an authority that was already written about him in heaven. God's enabling the sons to confront their fears in the day that we're in, doubt and unbelief, so that we're able to walk in a new freedom. Surely the Midianites outnumbered Israel by tens of thousands. One number that I read was over 120,000 people, and chariots and horses that could not be numbered. And Israel was far less equipped for war than what the Midianites were already in the land pursuing and maintaining the promise. And so I'm going to speed this story up a little bit. And he tells Gideon that you are going to defeat the entire Midian army as one man. Oh, yeah, great. How many times does somebody come up to you in the despair of the trial and the heartbreak and the gut ache and give you the word of God? And it's like, yeah, I know that word, but it's not real to me right now. 
And I don't know if it will ever change this circumstances. Yeah, it's the Word of God. And unbelief continues. Unbelief just kind of holds that place in your heart and in your spirit. And it's difficult to even begin to let it go. So God tells Gideon, all right, go and assemble an army. Goes and assembles an army. 22,000 people. This is according to the word. 22,000. And he brings them before the Lord. And what does the Lord do? Come on. There's 120,000 Midianites that we need to destroy and drive off the promise that is be given to the family of God. Surely, a 5 to 1 ratio, God might have a chance. He might have a chance. How many times do we get in trouble and I start looking for places in the natural to support battle plan A? I look for money, I look for resources, I look for wisdom, I go to the smart people that are around me, I kind of put my spiritual ear out to listen for anything that might sound like it's confirmation of plan A. I read the newspaper because maybe the newspaper will give me some insight into some government program that will help me in my quest for plan A. Or maybe I can go to my boss and get a raise and double my salary and I can become 44000 instead of 22000 however we do it. But God said, wait a second, if I were to deliver you from the Midianites in this way, you would say to me, I delivered myself. I came up with such a creative battle plan A. I'm a pretty smart guy. I'm pretty spiritual. I know the Word of God and I applied it in just the right way. And I read the Scriptures just at the right time and I received the revelation of God just in the perfect way. And all these things I did, I delivered myself. That's what God said would happen to Gideon. If I was to deliver you in this way, you would take the credit. I want you to go down to the pond, go down to the river, take a drink. And in the end, I won't go through the whole thing, but in the end, there were 300 people to take on 120,000. When God's word says one will put a thousand and two will put ten thousand, there is a spiritual principle in warfare that when we stand together, his plan, his story unfolds in our life. And we're standing in a place now where the multitudes are around us on every side. Discouragement, the attack on our mind, the attack on our emotions. The gut punch that we experience, probably, I, I experience almost it daily. I don't know what you do. But the attack and the warfare seems to be many-fold more significant today than even a couple of years ago. And just to maintain what I believe seems to be a struggle. Just to believe the covenant 
and the blood of Jesus Christ and to rely on that no matter what the circumstance says, no matter what the, what the witnesses say around me, what the voices that are constantly bombarding your mind want to get you to think and give up the promises and try to some work out some other way, some other plan. So in the end, God does speak a strategic approach to how he wants Gideon to take on the entire army as 300 people. And he tells them to do something that makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense to go get a bunch of pitchers and put lights inside. It doesn't make any sense to get horns and to go up on the hillside just a little ways away from the camp of the Midianites, where if you made one wrong move, within an hour you're dead. 300 people against 120,000. You don't even have to be <laughs> to work the numbers. There's no possible chance. But because Gideon obeyed, and these 300 men of valor obeyed, God turned the sword each man to his other within the camp of the enemy. And it says, because of what God did, the extraordinary deliverance. Amen? Don't ever forget Romans 8, 28. It says, all things work together for good of those who love God. Those who are called according to his purposes, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Do you know that God always intends the trial for every Christian? Trials put God on display. Love tends to identify itself to expose what we're really hoping on, not to discourage us as sometimes we might experience, right? When God, when there's 22,000 people standing on your side, that's pretty encouraging. But love came to say, it's not going to turn out that way. How many times have you formed plan A in your mind, thought it was a tremendous, fabulous plan, and then God orchestrated the event so not even the smallest part of that plan unfolds in the reality of who He is. He's done that to me so many times. And it can be discouraging. And sometimes I misunderstand that's not love. That's the adversary bringing confusion into my life, bringing something to get me distracted. But we're talking love. We're talking God. We're talking about His Spirit that lives inside of us, that's training us to understand the purpose of the trial. I'm just going to touch on Abraham. Abraham 
was the same as us. He received the promise of God. He received the understanding of the covenant. He received revelation. He received the promises of God. He received the, the, the understanding of how it was all going to play out in a future time. Descendants as numerous as the sands of the sea, more than the stars. If you could count those, you'd count your... Right? He understood that. But in order to do that, you have to have descendants. You have to have children. He didn't. So he develops battle plan A. Right? And then if we fast forward a little bit, we understand in the promise, the real promise to the covenant was given by the release of God's word. Right? Fast forward a bunch of years. Then God comes and says, I want you to sacrifice him on this altar and give him back to me. What? What? I just went through this whole thing in my life with Ishmael. And I just went through this whole thing where Isaac is born and he's being raised up to take my place. I can start to see the fulfillment of God's word. I can start to see little glimpses of it. I can start to see little shadows and places where my heart is encouraged again. I can see places where I can hope again. I feel like faith is arising again inside of me. That I've been so desperate. And now you're telling me to kill it? Why? You see, even God didn't know, wanted to test what was in Abraham's heart. And if we fast forward the events, the angel comes and said, now I know. Now I know. Now I know that you fear God and that the treasure that I'm going to unfold on you that is without measure, that is without me holding back, you won't pervert and twist it. You will rightly hold it and rightly work with me to establish my kingdom, to establish my promises, to establish what's in my heart. Now I know what's in your heart. Now I know that there isn't anything in your life that stands before me. Now I know that I can build on this foundation and know that it's going to exist for generations to come. Because there are lots and lots of others in the Bible that were given the same opportunity that within one year perverted the covenant and chose a different way. And the kingdom, Saul said, this day the kingdom is ripped from you and you will not walk. Had you have done this the right way, your kingdom would not have ceased to exist. Your kingdom would have been perpetual. And he had to look for someone else. He had to look for David. To release the very same word and said, on this throne will not fail to be one of your descendants. As I begin to close this morning, I want to remind you 
of Ezekiel 35 and 36 and 37. If you're wondering where we're at in the story of God, the passion that's in his heart, where we're going, what Tabernacles is going to be all about, how God is going to reconcile the threat of the adversary versus the promise of the covenant. How is God going to walk us through as a people to come from a place where Gideon is hiding in the caves and unsure about the prophecies now and unsure about where faith is, unsure about the insecurities. If you're wondering how God is going to reconcile all that, then read Ezekiel 35, 36, and 37. Ezekiel 35 starts with God intending judgment on all who, all who stand against him, on every enemy, every single enemy that tried to get you to walk contrary to the word of God, every single thought that came to your mind to assault you and to attack you, every single mindset that you've had wondering, where is the promise that was made to our fathers? Where is the promise of the prophecy that is released in this region, that is released in this house? Where are those promises? It says that's what Mount Seir represents, where the enemies of God now have his attention. And he releases his word against them. This is the judgment on what was standing against you that now has God's focus. Chapter 36 is where God, after God issues the release and the decree upon the, upon the inhabitants of Mount Seir, now God says, but my beloved, to bring you a blessing where your shame where your insecurity, where your doubt is turned into honor. The things where the adversary wanted to put onto you, God did to the adversary. The Midianites were 120,000 strong, and their thoughts in the camp was, we can't possibly lose this. We can hold out here for as long as it takes. And now, through the course of 300 mighty men of valor, Almost no, nothing in compared to the army that's in the, in the valley. God turns the entire situation around and they start killing themselves. And they start running for their lives. And then God says, pursue them and let every single one of them die by the edge of the sword. In intending there isn't going to be another day where you fight those enemies. That there's the kind of deliverance that makes it over. Ezekiel 36 is bringing a blessing on you where your shame is turned to honor, your joy and a fresh hope, where the dry places are restored once again and you continue to walk in the personal story and the destiny that is written about you. And as I come to a close, I want to read Ezekiel 37 to you. Because this is the same story that plays out in Ezekiel 36, but it's told in a different way. The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. 
There he caused me to pass by them all around, and behold, there were very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? Just the same way he did to to, uh, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. Yeah, you're hiding in the cave, but this day things change. So I answered and said to the Lord, only you know. If you don't do something, nothing will change. Again, he said to me, prophesy. In other words, release the promises. Release the promises that are in your heart again and start dreaming about what could be. And he said to me, prophesy to these dry bones and say to these, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Not my word, not my plan A or B or C. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live, and I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and breathe and breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I obeyed. I, I, I took on the, the mantle that he gave me. I took on the responsibility. I obeyed his voice. And I prophesied as I was commanded. And I prophesied and there was noise and suddenly a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them all over, but there was no breath in them. Also, he said to me, don't stop there. Keep doing what I'm telling you to do. Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, the breath of these slain, that they may live. So I obeyed. I took on the mantle of the authority of God. I walked under the covenant and the promises and the revelation. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into me, and they lived and stood up on their feet, an an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. That is the story of tabernacles. That is the story of the sons experiencing. That is the story of the sons experiencing an outpouring, a sonship, a mantle of authority, a walking in the covenant, a walking in the destiny that is written about them that hasn't been fulfilled yet. Ezekiel 35, 6 and 7 are a prophetic story of his heart, of his passion, of his desire, of the covenant that he's made, that he's promised, I will fulfill this. This is up to me. Because there isn't any other created being in all of my creation that's able to do this. You've got to look to me. You've got to recognize me. You've got to take faith again. You've got to restore the broken places of where you've abandoned the hope. You've got to stay in the places where I planted you. You've got to be a part of what I'm unfolding in the earth. Don't run. 
Don't call it something else. Don't listen to the adversary and the attack on the mind of redoing the laws of God, of reestablishing so they fit some soulish prophecy that you've dreamed up on your own. Don't allow the adversary to rob from you what God intends to do. Submit yourself to prayer. Submit yourself to fasting. Submit yourself to the hand and the will of God. I don't know what else to tell you. There is no other hope. The battle that rages on our minds and our emotions and our hearts is more than we can bear, though his word says, I never bring you beyond what you can bear. I think on a daily basis, this is too much. This is too much. I'm done. I'm done. And I start thinking like Gideon. I'm going re- to pull back, and I'm going to find a cave. I'm going to Alaska in three weeks. I'm probably going to stay there, just so you all know. Come visit me. I'll have dinner for you. But God's word calls us a different way. He gave us the land, and he expects us to be here when he unfolds the experience of tabernacles, the experience of his word. So as I close this morning, Father, I thank you for the blood and the body of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for your prophetic word that have come to this house in these past several months that talks about the the children, the sonship, that talks about the covenant, that talks about the, the, the price of the blood of Jesus Christ. And as we take partake of communion this morning, Father, I ask you again to let the body and the blood of Jesus Christ penetrate the dark places and the assault that is against our minds and bring us to a place again, Father, of hope, of the desire to stand where you have planted us. Because it's not of our own strength that we do this, but it is through the strength and the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we partake of communion this morning, remembering the covenant that Christ himself made with us personally. We remember the sacrifice that he went through. We remember the trials that he experienced. And he said, I am the first of many brethren. And so, Father, we contend and believe that we are that people through the taking of the blood and the body this morning. And so, Father, thank you for the blood and the body. And if you're online this morning, please remember, grace and mercy are being poured out in the day that we're in. Mercy to stamp any accusation against you as not guilty. And then grace to enable you to walk another day to bid hope to build the expectation of your healing emotionally and physically, spiritually, and even your soul. So as we partake of the blood this morning, Father, let there be a healing. Let there be the workings of the mysteries of God unfolding in our hearts. 
healing in every way, body, soul, and spirit, or emotions, the attack that's been on their minds. Father, restore the broken places. Restore the places of insecurity. Restore the places that have been barriers to us as individuals, that the blood of Jesus Christ is as powerful today as it was on that day when he gave himself on the cross. Amen? Let's come up front. Yeah, so for the people that are online, God bless. I hope the word has met you this morning. Um, Praise the Lord. Uh, Our website does show about tabernacles and the things that are happening. Be awesome uh, if you could join us uh, for that and experience God's outpouring. Uh, Until then, God bless.